This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you assure our hearts this morning? Would you grant that we would have certainty concerning the testimony that you have borne about your son? Would you grant that we would have testimony that this testimony that you've borne is is not merely something that happened outside of us 2,000 years ago, but would you grant that we would have assurance that Christ is in us and that we possess him through faith this morning and so that all that he is and all that he's done is ours fully and freely. Would you grant that we may know this morning that we have eternal life? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this past winter, a friend and I were sitting across from one another at one of those cafe tables at the downtown library, sipping hot coffee and, and talking. We had met and, and, uh, and were talking because um, I was worried about him. Um, I was worried. He, he seemed to sort of loosely affiliate himself with with Christian spirituality, but he wasn't actually a practicing Christian. He grew up in a Christian home. He knew a bit about the Bible, um, about church life, but, but now he didn't actually follow the way of Jesus. He's got no church family. He's not bearing fruit. He's not concerned with obeying Christ's commands, and so I wanted to meet with him to talk with him about the gospel, about faith, about repentance, and our conversation took a long, just a, it was a long conversation, it took a, a bunch of uh, twists and turns, and, and eventually uh, our conversation arrived at the topic of Christian assurance. My friend told me, he said, you, you know, uh, no one can actually know that they're saved, redeemed, in Christ, headed for glory, headed for the new heaven and new earth. Instead, we should all just kind of try to do our best and, and hope for the best. We can't have certainty, though. We can't have full confidence. We can't have Christian assurance. And I was shocked to hear this. Shocked to hear him say this. But, you know, in fact, in, in the sort of vast swath of Christian traditions, he, he's probably not in the minority. Um, I mean, if you've got 
a Wesleyan friend or a Free Will Baptist friend or a Roman Catholic friend, they'll likely tell you, as my friend told me in the library that, that morning, that if you have Christian assurance, that is the height of arrogance. If you tell them that you have Christian assurance, they might tell you that you are an arrogant, self-righteous prig. In fact, you know, one one major uh, influential Roman Catholic theologian once said that the greatest of all Protestant heresies is not justification through faith alone. The greatest of all uh, Protestant heresies is, is not that Scripture is our final authority alone. He said that the greatest of all Protestant heresies is the doctrine of Christian assurance, that you can know, that you can have certainty, that you can have full confidence that your position in Christ is one of being a born-again, justified, adopted child of God headed for glory. That's the greatest of all Protestant heresies. So what of it? Is, is it? is it arrogant to assume? Is it arrogant to have assurance of your salvation? Is it, if you have assurance, are you a self-righteous prig? Is it, a, is it an assuming thing to have Christian assurance? Is it the greatest of all Protestant heresies? What John shows us this morning is that it is great, but it's not a heresy. It's what God wants for us. He wants us to be confident. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. He wants us to have Christian assurance. That that is his revealed will for us. John says it right here. God wants you to have the comfort and peace and rest in your soul that comes from knowing that you have eternal life in Christ. He doesn't want you to be tortured in your soul about whether or not you're safe and secure in him. He doesn't want you to continually feel like you have to do this or that in order to be worthy of him. And furthermore, it's, it's not arrogant, it's not self-righteous because assurance, our assurance isn't actually based on, isn't founded upon our own goodness, righteousness, or worthiness. You know, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're not righteous enough. But if you trust in Christ, God's acceptance of you isn't based on your worthiness, but upon Christ's worthiness. And he is infinitely worthy, therefore your assurance comes from him. God wants you to know this morning. He wants you to know and he wants that knowledge, that assurance to be based, to be founded upon Jesus Christ. And so John tells us this morning that for this reason, for our assurance, God has given us his testimony concerning his son, and he has given us possession of eternal life in his son. And because of this, we can know. We can know that we have eternal life. So let's look briefly at at God's testimony, our possession, and our assurance. God's testimony, our possession, and our assurance. First, God's testimony. John writes in verses 6 to 9, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he was born concerning his Son. So, picture a big courtroom. All right, we're, we're convened in this big courtroom uh, in order to prove your possession of eternal life in Christ if you trust in him, in order to prove, to give you Christian assurance if you trust in Christ. You know, it's, it's, 
I should say, it's not a courtroom to convince unbelievers of the truthfulness of the gospel. Some have treated this text that way, but that's not what John's doing here. He did that in his gospel, the gospel according to John. But he's not attempting to convince unbelievers here of the truth of the gospel. Uh, He's trying to convince believers of their possession of eternal life. And so we're in a courtroom. It's, It's a courtroom to convince believers of their possession of eternal life in Christ. And in this courtroom, John calls three witnesses to the stand. He calls the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And these three witnesses, John says, they collectively agree they are God's testimony to us concerning the person and work of Jesus and of our eternal life in him. And so the first witness he calls to the stand, he calls the water. Now, what does that mean? Views actually abound here. Uh, but, but what makes the most sense, according to the literary and historical context, is that John is talking about Christ's own baptism. He's, he's talking about John 1, Mark 1, Matthew 3, Luke 3, where we see the baptism of Jesus Christ. And, and I should say, this is one of my favorite scenes in all the Bible. It's an absolutely gorgeous scene. It's, it's the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, where he's anointed for the work of of ministry. And what we see is Jesus come to his cousin, John the Baptist. John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, and Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and he says, hey, cuz, uh, you need to baptize me here in the Jordan River. And, and John the Baptist says, you know, like anyone would, me baptize you? Like, I need you to baptize me. What are you talking about? Jesus responds by saying, you know, this is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. You're going to baptize me, okay? And so John says, all right. Um, and, 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 and so we see something amazing happen here. They go down into the water, and John baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's almost, it's just an intimate scene between lovers. You're almost unsure if you should be seeing this. The veil between heaven and earth becomes a, a little bit thinner, And we see God the Father declare over Jesus Christ, this is my beloved Son with whom my soul is well pleased. And then the Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of that. We get a glimpse of the glory that has existed for all of eternity past. It's beautiful. And John is saying, look at this scene. Look at this scene. He mentions this scene. He says, see, there it is. God the Father has borne testimony to the identity of his son. He has given his son his stamp of approval. He has borne testimony. He's publicly proclaimed and declared and confirmed that Jesus is his son and that Jesus is anointed to accomplish our salvation. Jesus truly is the son of God. He's the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, who has come to save us from our sins. He is the righteous one in whom the Father delights. That's what the water tells us. The water bears witness to the identity of who Christ is. And next, John calls the blood to the stand. And by this, he's using shorthand to talk about the crucifixion and death of Jesus. The baptism and cross of Jesus, they they bookend his earthly ministry. His baptism is the beginning of his earthly ministry. And it's his anointing as our prophet, priest, and king. But ultimately, we see that his anointing, he's actually anointed. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one in order to die on behalf of God. 
of his people. He came not by the water only, but also by the blood. And so John calls the blood to the stand, and he brings to mind here the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. In this courtroom where we are convened to prove the eternal life and the salvation of you, believer, John calls you to remember the blood of Jesus shed for you on the cross. He wants you to remember how Christ was scourged and mocked and beaten. He wants you to remember how he was nailed to that tree, how they pierced his hands and feet. He wants you to remember how they pressed a crown of thorns into his skull. He wants you to remember that they raised his cross on Mount Golgotha, and he hung there naked, bleeding, gasping for air, and there he died for you, and he did so as the beloved son of God, with whom God was well pleased. As the beloved son of God, he was treated as a sinner so that you, a sinner, could be treated as a child of God. I think one of the biggest reasons we might struggle with Christian assurance, why we might struggle with certainty regarding our salvation sometimes, is that we don't hold the cross before our eyes. It's there where Christ cried, it is finished with his dying breath. He said, it is done. I've accomplished it in full and there's no more to be done for your salvation. You know, without holding the cross before our eyes, we so easily fall into the trap of thinking that in some way, our salvation depends on us. Our reconciliation to God depends on us. We fall into the trap of thinking that in some, even if it's just the smallest way, this thing depends on us. Even if it's just 1%. You know, God saves us 99% of the way, and we got to do this extra 1% to make ourselves worthy, to get or keep ourselves in. Here's the thing. If, if, if you have to accomplish even 1% of your salvation, you're doomed. You, you can't do it. You will ruin that 1%. And so if it's on us, even just 1%, we're bound to despair. We're bound to to lack assurance. Christian, look at the cross. Look at what Christ in his great love has has done for you. The Father in his great love has done for you so that you could be safe and secure. Remember the testimony of the blood. God bears witness to your eternal life in it. And next, John calls the Spirit to the stand. This is a safe move because the Spirit, He is the truth, John says. The Spirit is God. From Hebrews 6.18, we know that it is impossible for God to lie. Typically, witnesses have to take an oath when they approach the stand. The Spirit doesn't have to do that. He can't lie. And His work in the life of the believer is to testify to the believer concerning Christ. Jesus talked about this Himself in in John 15.26. He said, you know, when the Helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And we've we've talked about this much throughout 1 John already. The Spirit is the one he empowers us to discern and confess the truth concerning Jesus Christ. He, He furnishes every single believer with personal saving faith. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God this morning, that is because the Spirit has borne witness to to Christ in your heart and life. The Spirit is the third testifier that John calls to mind here. So these are the three witnesses that John calls to the stand. These are the three that collectively give us God's most certain testimony of who Christ is for us. 
This is not, and, and, and notice, John is saying this is God's testimony. This is not just my personal opinion about things. He is claiming in the strongest terms possible that, that this is God's sure word on the subject. But then he goes a step further. He not only wants us to consider God's objective and external testimony concerning Jesus Christ, but he wants us to consider the reality of Christ in us. He wants us to consider that if we trust in Christ, it's not as if God's testimony is only merely this thing that happened a long time ago, 2,000 years ago in history, or that it's this thing recorded for us on the pages of the Bible. No, he wants us to know that through faith, that's, that there's a very present and powerful reality that we experience right now. That we have a very real, what we might call, union with the Christ and Son of God. Now, John Calvin, he, he communicated this beautifully when he said that, you know, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. You see, we're not only to consider Christ outside of us, but Christ in us for assurance. We not only look to God's testimony concerning Christ in history and on the pages of the Bible, but also to our personal union with and possession of Jesus Christ. And next we see our possession John writes in verses 10 to 12, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John is telling us that, that when we receive Christ through faith, God's testimony is not only contained in these historic events of the water and the blood. That is, it's not only contained in the written word that records these historic events, the Bible, but God's testimony is written onto the heart of the believing Christian. The Christian, ha the Christian has this testimony since, he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Now, what does it mean to have this testimony in yourself? It means that in light of the witnessing work of the Holy Spirit, you have realized the truth concerning Jesus Christ and received him by faith. And John sets this in contrast to, to, to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Of course, you know, he's thinking about the Gnostics and the Docetists and the, the heretic Serentius. He's thinking of these very specific individuals. He's thinking of those who are a part of the church there in Asia Minor, but who had abandoned the people of God and followed these cleverly devised myths. They have refused God's testimony concerning Christ and thereby calling God a liar. That's specifically who John has in mind. But this is true of everyone who has heard and rejected the truth concerning Christ. Everyone who has heard or either and either rejected or remained indifferent to the truth concerning Christ have, as it were, looked God in the face and called him a liar, John says. And this is why John says in, in verse 12 that they don't have eternal life. Those who don't trust Christ, those who haven't received him by faith, don't have eternal life. They've rejected God. They've rejected his testimony. They've rejected Christ. They've rejected eternal life life. 
But for Christians, for those who have believed and received Christ, they possess eternal life. Possess eternal life. What does that mean? Eternal life. What does eternal life mean? Does that mean that a human being who possesses eternal life will exist forever? It means that, yes, but, but it means something more than that. Now, of course, the, the Bible teaches that everyone, believer and unbeliever, will exist for the rest of eternity. No one will ever simply cease to exist. Everyone will exist for the rest of eternity, either in hell or with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. And so when John talks about eternal life here, he must mean something more than just existing for the rest of eternity. When John talks about eternal life here, he he must not just be talking about a a quantity of life, but a quality of life too. You see, when John says that we possess eternal life in Christ, he's not just saying that we're going to exist forever. He's saying that we are going to flourish forever. When he says that, that, we are going, that we have eternal life, he is saying that we are going to have a life of abundance and wholeness and shalom forever. I, I, I love this, this pastor by the name of Ray Ortland. He pastors a church in Nashville by the name of Emmanuel Church. And their church has what they, sometimes, what they call the, the Emmanuel mantra. It's a sort of slogan they repeat to each other often. And it goes like this, three parts. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anybody can get in on this. And that's true. You may be a complete idiot this morning, but your future, if you trust in Christ, is incredibly bright. Your future is incredibly bright. You have resurrection life with the resurrected Christ in a resurrection body on a resurrected earth to look forward to for all of eternity when Christ returns in glory. You possess eternal life. But here notice that that John doesn't just speak of this eternal life as something we'll possess in the future. No, he says that we have this life now. It's something that we have been given now and in the present. And of course, you know, we understand the the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. We live in the already and not yet of our full redemption. We have received Christ. We have received the Holy Spirit. We live in a wonderful time where Christ has come, the Spirit has been poured out, but we're still waiting for the second coming and the full realization of our salvation. But, 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 John is saying here that we get to experience the first fruits of it now through our union with Christ. We get a foretaste of that eternal flourishing, that eternal wholeness, that eternal shalom right now as we experience the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Don't you know, Christian, your future is brighter, but your present is still very, very bright because you possess Christ and his life is within you. The spirit of Jesus Christ is currently working the leaven of eternal life throughout your entire being. And one day you will experience it in fullness. And the reason that you possess present and future eternal life is because you possess Christ. You know, this life, John says, this life that we possess in the Son, we possess this eternal life because we possess Jesus Christ. 
know, we, we talk a lot about our salvation around here. We talk a lot about, you know, justification through faith alone. God declares us righteous. We talk a lot about the new birth, being born again. The Spirit comes and makes us alive in Christ. We talk about our adoption, that we are, we've been given a new identity as sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. Christ has shared his sonship with us. We talk about our future glorification when Christ returns and we're raised with him to rule with him forever. We talk about eternal life. We talk about the doctrine of salvation a lot around here. But here's something you need to realize. While all of those gifts, they are wonderful, as wonderful as all of them are, none of them is actually the best part of our salvation. Christ is. And in fact, he is the one from whom all those blessings flow. You know, all of those aspects of our salvation are like little streams of blessing, but he is the fountainhead of them all. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ is our salvation. The new birth is in him. Our justification is in him. Our adoption as sons and daughters is in him. Our future resurrection is in him. And John wants us to know here in 1 John 5, 6 through 13, that our eternal life is in him. He is our eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. He is eternal life. He is the source for eternal life for us. You see, he is our salvation. You know, as much as we've talked about the importance of faith and sound doctrine throughout the book of 1 John, as much as we talked about the importance of genuine love, as much as we've talked about the importance of devoted obedience throughout 1 John, none of these things is your salvation. None of them are your salvation. Christ is your salvation. That's why you can have genuine assurance this morning. That's why it's not arrogant or self-righteous to possess genuine assurance because it's based on who he is and what he's done. It's based on his worthiness, not yours. He is why you can be a complete idiot and still have an incredibly bright future. That is why you can know this morning that you have eternal life because Christ is enough. He is your salvation and he is enough. And so John moves on to talk about our assurance now. He continues on, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to know. God wants us to know. He wants you to know. He wants your conscience to be at rest, at peace. He wants you to have Christian assurance this morning. And he wants it to be based and founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. I I want you to notice here what assurance isn't. Assurance isn't the same thing as faith. Okay, Nor is it essential to faith. Get the definition up there of... I have it somewhere. You can go to the next slide, maybe the next one. 
what assurance is and isn't. Okay, so here it is. Assurance isn't identical to or essential to saving faith. It's not always experienced alongside saving faith. You know, John is writing to those who believe, who have saving faith in the Son of God to know that, that, that they have eternal life. They, they believe in the, same, in the Son of God, so they have eternal life. They have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but they're lacking assurance. They have saving faith, but they're struggling with assurance. Assurance isn't the same thing as saving faith. This means that while you might at times sense a decrease or or maybe an altogether loss of assurance in your life, that doesn't mean that you have lost faith and therefore have lost salvation. And the most assured believer and the least assured believer still possess the same eternal life in the same Christ. But then what is assurance? What is assurance? Assurance, then, is a confidence and certainty of the possession of eternal life. It's it's a certainty regarding God's acceptance of you. It's a certainty about your possessing eternal life. And you know, it's it's a wonderful gift. When you lack assurance, I'm sure you know, it can feel like all the strength to follow Jesus has been drained from you. And when you lack assurance, you might feel a weight on your conscience. When you lack assurance, you might feel hollow and heavy. You might feel anxious and insecure. But when you're enjoying Christian assurance, you feel invigorated. Prayer comes more easily. Glad obedience comes. Joy, peace, hope abound. So it's no mystery why God wants us to possess Christian assurance. And it's natural. You should want to desire it too. You should want to have Christian assurance, you should want to have this this certainty, this confidence this morning. So before we conclude, I want to look briefly at how we can pursue Christian assurance. How we can pursue Christian assurance. The first thing that we should remember when discussing how to pursue Christian assurance is that we should pursue Christian assurance. You know, I I love the, the Second London Baptist Confession. It's one of the best documents, I think, that, that, the ever church, that the church has ever produced, church history has ever produced. And there's a section on Christian assurance, and at one point, it, it literally says that at times we can lose assurance because we neglect to preserve it. In other words, we can lose assurance because we're not seeking assurance. We don't seek to confirm our calling and election, as Second Peter 1.10 says we should. We don't work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as Philippians 2.12 says we should. And so first, I would say we should pursue Christian assurance. Even if you're not struggling with assurance, pursue it. Don't neglect it. It's something you ought always pursue. God wants it for us, therefore we should pursue it. And second, I would say that we ought to devote ourselves to God's word. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. So we've already seen that God's testimony concerning Christ, the person work of Jesus, the work of Jesus is the basis for our assurance. It's the foundation for our assurance. And where do we behold the person and work of Jesus today? We behold Jesus through the word of God. It's there where we learn of and commune with the Christ. 
It's where we see his character and his miracles and his life and his teaching and his baptism and his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his promises of forgiveness and eternal life revealed to us. You know, if you ever come to me saying that you're lacking Christian assurance, one of the first things I'm going to ask you is, how central is God's word in your life? If we take an inventory, if we take a a sort of schedule time inventory of your week, are we going to see a person who is more devoted to social media and entertainment than to God's word? Because here's the thing, it, it wouldn't surprise me a bit, not at all, if you check Facebook or Instagram every 30 minutes and spend 20 minutes of your entire week in the word or in prayer, and you're struggling with assurance, it wouldn't surprise me at all. You need to get off Facebook and get your face into the book. That's where we behold the basis and foundation for our assurance, Christ Jesus. I'm going to skip this third one and go straight to the fourth one. Third, confess your sins. I think if you look back to times in your life where you struggled with assurance the most, you'd find that often, not always, but often that it happens because of a specific sin that wounds our consciences or grieves the spirit. It's not always the case. And so we should be very careful not to assume that just because someone is struggling with assurance that they've fallen into a particular unconfessed Sin, you know, that can harm and wound people. Sometimes we struggle with assurance because we're victims of sin. Sometimes we struggle with assurance because uh, we're, we're facing intense suffering. Sometimes we struggle with assurance and we have no idea why. It just feels like God has lifted the countenance of his face off of us and, and we have no idea why. We don't have answers. We just know that we're feeling like God is not with us any longer and sometimes that happens. And so we should never automatically assume that a struggle with assurance is because of unconfessed sin. However, if you're lacking assurance, it is wise to consider if there's a particular sin in your life that is wounding your conscience and grieving the spirit. Are are you hiding an addiction to pornography? Are you failing to identify yourself as a Christian and to confess Christ to an unbelieving friend or coworker or family member? Have you participated in immoral activity at work, whether it's crude joking or stealing from your employer by not working the hours you say that you're working or, or wasting time when you should be working or, 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 or what have you. Do, do you see, we might be grieving the Spirit, wounding our consciences and thereby affecting our assurance of salvation in doing so. And if that's the case, confess your sins. Confess your sins. Go to God in prayer and confess your sins. You know, John says, 1 John 1, 7, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to to cleanse you, to give you an inner washing, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you feel like you need to confess your sins to not just God, but to a brother or sister in Christ, take them aside and and, and confess your sins to them because it's when we confess our sins that God forgives us and he cleanses us from this unrighteousness. Confess your sins. 
Lastly, I would say that we can pursue assurance by pursuing close community, pressing into community, pressing into spiritual friendships with one another. I know, I know that when struggling with assurance, one of the impulses you might have is to withdraw from Christian friendships and community. You might feel ashamed, you might feel exhausted, you might feel a desire to hide, you might feel anxious, but hiding is the worst thing you can do. That is not the time to withdraw, but to press in. Last week in our city group, I saw one of the most amazing and encouraging scenes that I've seen probably in my entire time at Veritas. One of our applications last week was that those currently possessing assurance should encourage and be a means of assurance to those struggling. So we took some time to do just that. We rallied around one another and told one another that we are blood-bought sons and daughters of God. We told one another where we saw fruit and growth in one another. We looked at one another and told one another that we knew, even if they didn't, we knew that they were authentic and genuine followers of Jesus, possessing eternal life, possessing Christ Jesus. As we quoted last week, you know, Luther once said that the gospel on my brother's lips is sometimes stronger than the gospel in me. Sometimes you just need the mutual consolation and encouragement of the saints. Sometimes you just need to hear it on the lips of another because assurance in you is dimming, darkening, dead. You just need a brother or sister to blow on those faintly burning embers, to put kindling around your heart and to rekindle those flames of assurance. We ought to do that for one another. We, want, we should want assurance for ourselves, but we should want assurance for one another. We should remind one another that the basis for our salvation, the basis of your salvation is not you. You're not saved because of your worthiness. You're not saved because of your goodness. You're not saved because of your righteousness. You're saved because of Jesus Christ, because of who he, he is as the Son of God. And we know who he is because God has borne testimony by the water. We know that we're saved because of what Christ has done on the cross. And we know this because God has borne testimony to it by the blood. And we know this because God has borne testimony in us by giving us the Spirit, the one who testifies to us that we have eternal life in Christ. That, my friends, is why you can know this morning that you have eternal life because Christ is your eternal life. And if you trust in him, you possess him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your son. That he has come, lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and risen. And we thank you that as he ascended to your right hand, that you have sent the spirit to us through him. So that we might be one with Christ. Possessing all that he is and all that he's done for us with certainty. 
is you've borne testimony to that reality this morning. Would you press it into our hearts that we might know that we have eternal life this morning? And as you press it into our hearts, would you help us to press it into one another's hearts that we might be a source of encouragement and assurance for one another? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments for silent reflection before coming to the Lord's table.